Listen, we are not salesmen of Jesus. We're not trying to draw people in with, you know, coffee. That, that's just a blessing. But that's not why we come here, right? That's not like what we do is like, hey, you're gonna, this is where you get married. This is the marriage ministry. Come and meet singles. <laughs> also, we give Bible studies. That's not what we're doing. That's not what it's about. That's not how we draw people in. That's not why we do what we do. An ambassador delivers the message of the king. He doesn't make apologies or excuses for it. He simply, he simply delivers it. And that's what Paul said he came to do. I simply delivered the message. I told you as a witness to what God had done in my own life. Listen, you don't have to go out and sell Jesus to anybody. In fact, it's a total turnoff to people when you have to sell them something. It's some kind of commodity. It's some, you're using Jesus, some kind of transaction. But listen, this principle is true. What you draw people with is what you draw them to. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. First Corinthians chapter 2. Let us pray as we get into our study. Lord, we thank you for this night where we can come and worship you. Lord, that you are a God who loves to be in fellowship with your people. And, and so, Lord, we, we're so thankful that you're here in this room tonight. We pray, God, that you would begin to move among us, soften our hearts to, to what you would have to teach us what you would have to speak to our hearts. Lord, we want to hear from you tonight. We don't want to hear someone's opinion. We don't want to hear someone's uh, thoughts. We want to hear from your heart. And God, we want to know you more. And so, Lord, we pray that you would anoint this time as we teach your word, as we study it together. God, would you speak to us now? We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And God, we ask that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, like I was saying, I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm the pastor here. And uh, last week I was on vacation. So you had Pastor Joe. Uh, pastor Jojo was here teaching you guys. And I was on vacation with my, my family. I have four small children. Um, I know, so young. Um, yeah, I have four kids. And my wife and I have been married like 12 years, 12 and a half years. So yeah, so that's where I was on vacation with my children uh, camping on the beach, nothing greater than camping with a toddler. So much fun, so much fun. Dirt everywhere, every little crevice, ants. It was good. So that's where I was, but I'm glad to be back teaching you guys. Last week, Joe took us through the rest of chapter one, talking about the issue of division. And the letter started with Paul talking about the church that God sees. In verses 1 through 10, Paul talks about all these wonderful enrichments that God has given the church. And, and the way that God saw these people, he saw them in their hearts, they saw them as they were positionally in Christ. And then he moves throughout that, the next part of the, the chapter, talking about the church that the world sees. Now, this is what God sees. He sees you holy, righteous, sanctified. I mean, blessed. And what a great way to start the book and the letter. It's kind of a compliment sandwich letter. He starts off with, you are blessed. God is good. Here's how God sees you. And he's going to bring a laundry list of, of issues that have been going on in the church about them. And, think, and he's going to end it with like, hey, Jesus still loves you, though. That's great. The grace of God exists. So, so here we are at this tail end of the chapter where Paul is explaining to them the, the type of church that the world is seeing, that, that the church should be a place that exudes and exemplifies Christ. 
that what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his son, it should actually change and form the way in which we live. And the church was not doing that. They weren't seeing that. And so Paul's explaining to them what the church is to be and how they're seeing. They were dealing with something called carnality. Carnality. The root of so many of the problems that Paul is going to address is the sin of, first of all, pride, which leads to carnality. Carnality is simply a word that just means flesh. It's like carne asada, fleshy, meaty. It means, right? There you go. Now you'll remember forever. Carnality, asada. Um, so... It's this idea of flesh where we've been saved and brought out of and are no longer a slave to the flesh. That we now walk in the spirit. We're, not, we're no longer uh, belonging to the flesh, but we belong to the Lord. We're saved. We've been rid of the flesh. But yet, as Christians, we can choose to walk again and be controlled by the flesh. And so was the church in Corinth. They continue to live as though the gospel didn't change their living, but only encouraged them to sin as they were. As if the, the gospel doesn't change everything about us. I'm sorry, you cannot be born again of the Spirit of God and everything just stays the same, right? Can we all agree? The same power, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in us, and things don't just stay the same. There's a different kind of life that we now get to live. Do we slip up? Do we sin? Absolutely. Go on vacation with four little kids and you will sin, guaranteed. It's bound to happen throughout the first five minutes of the day. But here's the point. Paul's helping them to understand that this is not the way in which we are to live, abusing the grace of God. Giving God, like Pastor John talked about last night, giving God opportunity to be gracious by the sins that we commit. He's saying, don't you understand? He's going to use that phrase over and over. Or do you not know is a phrase that will continue to come up over and over. They were basing their holiness also off of who baptized them, not by who shed his blood for them. And this led to all sorts of weird stuff that was going on in the church. But this letter is a message of grace and a calling together of the church that each, each other is not the enemy, but the enemy is the enemy. Right? Let me say that one more time because that didn't really make sense, did it? We are not the enemy. And the division that was happening in the church is, was, is because people were being lied to by the devil and seeing each other as lesser than one another. And that created division. And what they were seeing is that each other was the enemy. We are not the enemy are we? Christians together in one place. We are not the enemy. The enemy himself is in fact the enemy, the author of confusion, the author of division. It's what he loves. And so when we see each other through that lens, that we are not the enemy, but there is someone who is out to get us, we have to bind together. We need unity. We need each other because there is a real devil who really hates you and would love to tear you apart. And so Paul is saying to them, we need to come together. You need to understand that there's no, we are not saved by who baptized you. We are not saved because Pastor John takes you down to Doheny and dunks you in. If one of the assistant pastors does it, it's not really taking. And that's kind of what they were comparing it to. Like, oh, it was the youth pastor who dunked me, so I got to get pastorized or baptized by the real guy. And then the real power comes. Like, it doesn't matter as a youth pastor who's like, come on, who stands there by himself and everyone's going to the, the senior pastor line and you're just standing there waist deep waiting for someone to come and be baptized and you're like, I can do it too. <laughs> it's real easy, but bam, you know, or whatever. 
I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> but verse one, it says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing or know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The beginning of this chapter begins with a transition word, and, which points us to the immediate context. There's never like a, in the original letter, there was no chapter break, there's no verses, there was no chapter titles. And so it's one continuous thought, one continuous letter. And, and when he says, and, it points us and reminds us to where we've come from. What is Paul talking about? And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. And the point is, is it points us to verse 26 through 31. Which tells us, for you seeing your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. These verses talk about the way in which God's power is seen and manifested throughout mankind. And the way in which God is glorified through us is in the very fact that we are chosen by God, not based upon our ability or our gifting, but based upon a very powerful and good God. It's by him empowering and using something that is weak in the world's eyes or even foolish according to the world's standards to bring and accomplish that which is impossible. And there's a list of these things throughout scripture. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, we see this exampled for us in God's chosen servant and who he calls to be uh, or who he calls to use in something and some great work or some great miracle that the Lord desires to use. And there's a list. Are you ready? You're not even ready. Are you ready for the list? Yes. Noah was a drunk. Stop me if you've heard this before. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph, that's right, Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Interesting fact about Samson. I don't know if you saw the Nat Geo version of Samson. He's like this huge African-American dude and he's like, Rawr! commentators believe that Samson was in fact a skinny, scrawny little dreadlock dude. It was, it had nothing, no, it's, we have no way of knowing, but it could possibly be true. And here's why, think about it for a minute. His whole, the Bible never describes the way he looked other than his hair. And if you've never cut your hair since you're a little kid and you don't have shampoo or conditioner, you have disgusting hair, don't you? It's called dreadlocks. It's like a trend. You, you have these, this matted braid. Now, he was attacked constantly, and it was as if they thought, like, we can beat this guy. Look at him. He's a buck ten. Like, we can beat him. It had nothing to do with his biceps or his quads. It had nothing to do with his gym routine. It had everything to do with the fact, this phrase comes up throughout Judges, that the Spirit of God came upon him and empowered him. It wasn't because Samson was born with this natural physique where he looked like a human triangle and he was crossfitting before crossfit existed. It was because the spirit of God came upon him and anointed him and strengthened him to the point where he was able to do things that no one else could do. 
And in the reason is because people would look at that and go, there is something very weird about this situation. There's something supernatural. This is not natural. Samson had a lot of issues though. He liked the ladies. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. That's a problem. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious and bald. Lazarus was dead for crying out loud. And these are the people in which we read are inspired because the Spirit of God came and used them to do something that no one else could do. The emphasis in why Paul is bringing this to the forefront is because this is a principle that all Christians need to understand that our faith stands within the power of God. That we need to stand within the power of God. Not in the eloquence of the way we speak or the way we preach, obviously. Not in our educational system. Not in anything other than the simple power of God. This list of people is not our first choice of people. But this is the people that God had chosen to accomplish his will and to bring glory to himself. Why? Verse 29 says this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That no one could say, look what I did. Paul's bringing this up because he's going to relate this to salvation. In the same way, he says, we have done nothing to earn the grace and the salvation that we've been given. Doesn't matter who baptized you. Doesn't matter who you follow or are discipled by. It has everything to do with the God that you believe in. By faith. Ice machine. Don't, don't get worried. That is the key verse. He goes on to say, but to him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that it's written, he who glories that I'm glory in the Lord. Even the cross itself as a way of salvation to the rest of the world, they saw it as foolishness. How could this be the way of salvation through a, a, a savior coming and dying? The cross was reserved for the insurrectionists, those that would rebel against Rome. But as to those who believed in Jesus, it was a reminder that Jesus had led the rebellion against sin and death. To them, it was salvation. But to those who saw it as foolishness, it was a, a, a loser's death. But to us, the cross should humble us as well and embolden us to stand in faith in the power of God. And Paul is emphasizing these principles for our life. Number one, our faith must stand in the power of God. It has to. And that depends on whether or not we accept the verdict of Calvary that declares the bankruptcy of self and the futility of anything untouched by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, in my preaching, even in the, in the sharing of the gospel, it had to be rooted within the power of God. He says, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. When Paul showed up in Corinth, he had been imprisoned at Philippi. He had been smuggled out of Thessalonica because they wanted to kill him. He was even driven out of Berea. Then at the arch in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, you can read about it. 
he preached this eloquent sermon. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, like tailored work. It's, it's a spirit thing that happened there in Athens as he, he tells him that this is, this is a, a, or he sees this little placard to the unknown God. And he says, I want to tell you about the unknown God. And he uses this amazing opportunity to preach the gospel. It's, it's an incredible sermon. You should read it. Acts chapter 17. He preaches this amazing sermon with little effect. It says that some followed. Others were like, eh, we'll hear you again. Like, good job. I'll give it a seven, you know? <laughs> he preached with elegance and eloquence. And he reasoned from logic with little response. And as Paul is getting ready to come to Corinth, we have this verse that gives us an idea of what was going on in his head and in his heart. If you look at Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you, because I have many people in this city. What that tells us, if the Lord came to him in the night in a vision and says to him, Don't be, don't be afraid. It tells us that Paul was afraid. And you would be too. I would be too. If I get beaten with sticks everywhere I go, I'd be kind of nervous and a little shaky, a little jumpy, you know, like, hey. <laughs> but the Lord speaks to him. And there's also one Greek commentator who believes that Paul had come, when he came to Corinth, he got very, very sick. And so he was sweating constantly. He felt horrible, miserable. He shook like fever chills and he was always feeling horrible, sweating, and felt terrible. He couldn't stand very long. And so he looked very weak and frail. He was afraid. He felt weak. He trembled, he says. His speech was plain. He simply preached that Christ lived, died, and rose from the grave. Look what he says in verse 2. For I determined to know nothing or know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But look at the way in which he came. He came, he says, as a testimony of God. He came as a witness, not as a salesman. Is, is what Paul is saying. He came to give testimony like a witness brought to the stand to give evidence of the works of God. Paul came not as a salesman, but as an ambassador. You've ever gone car shopping, if that's happened to you or you've gone used car shopping. Um, it's an interesting experience. But you ask like, does this car get great, good gas mileage? Oh, it gets great gas mileage. Did anyone smoke in this car? No one has ever smoked ever in this lot, ever in this car. Does this car run? It absolutely runs. Is this color green? No. Blue? What's your favorite color? Green. Yes, it is green. Absolutely. It's a little tricky on the eyes. <laughs> Salesmen will tell you anything you want to hear in order to get you in the car, right? Paul says, I didn't come to you like a salesman. I wasn't trying to sell you Jesus. I simply came as a witness to bear witness of what Christ has done for us. Listen, we are not salesmen of Jesus. We're not trying to draw people in with, you know, coffee. That, that's just a blessing. But that's not why we come here, right? That's not like what we do is like, hey, you're going to, this is where you get married. This is the marriage ministry. Come and meet singles. <laughs> also, we give Bible studies. That's not what we're doing. That's not what it's about. That's not how we draw people in. That's not why we do what we do. An ambassador delivers the message of the king. He doesn't make apologies or excuses for it. He simply, he simply delivers it. And that's what Paul said he came to do. I simply delivered the message. I told you as a witness to what God had done in my own life. Listen, you don't have to go out and sell Jesus to anybody. In fact, it's a total turnoff to people when you have to sell them something. 
as some kind of commodity. As some, you're using Jesus as some kind of transaction or some, some way to draw people in. Like, oh, we have this amazing thing and eh, there's like a little religious thing going on, but it's cool, you know, be cool. Imagine if we had a special Sunday here. It was called Free Beer Sunday. You could certainly draw a crowd, couldn't you? You put a huge sign in the middle of San Juan that says free beer. You could draw a crowd. Come on, you could draw a crowd with free beer. Free cookies, you could draw a crowd. Free donuts, hello. But we just put a sign up that says, hey, it's free, come on by. You can draw a crowd. But listen, this principle is true. What you draw people with is what you draw them to. What you draw people with is what you draw them to. Here at this church, what we desire is to draw people with Jesus, the love of Christ, with the gospel. The draw is not just some kind of fellowship or community. You'll find friends. That is a byproduct of you finding Jesus Christ. It's not just you having this joy and feeling good about yourself. That is a byproduct of you knowing Christ in him crucified. And that's why Paul says, I determined. I made it my aim to get out of the way and to let the Lord work. It was at this point that the apostle Paul had to believe what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Paul had to leave the outcome in the hands of God and believe what Jesus has told him. That the gospel is powerful for the resurrecting of the soul. It brings life where there is death. That the message is powerful enough to change any life, no matter how far gone. To lift him up, to preach Christ, meaning to tell people what he said, what he did, and him crucified. That by his death, we can be saved from our sins. It is important to understand I think John talked about this on Sunday, that the preaching of the gospel does not mean, hey, come to my church. It's really cool. Everyone's really friendly. It's gray. Like, that's not the, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived. He died. He lives again. And he died for your sins. The wrong things that you've committed, you have wronged a holy God, but he offers you and extends to you salvation in his heaven for all eternity. And if you choose to not accept him as Lord and Savior, hell is a real place that does exist for those who reject him. Christ offers you salvation for free. He said, if you don't believe me or you don't like the way I say it, just talk to the early church. Paul made it his aim to not try and sell them on him, but to bring them Christ, to bring them the Savior, to disappear and to allow Jesus to come to the forefront. He was determined to preach Christ. Like if he's determined to only do that, then what was he excluding? In verse 23, it says in that gospel that the Jews wanted a sign and the Greeks want wisdom. And Jesus even said in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, they came to him and said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which again validates the story of Jonah. A lot of people, they're like, Jonah, that's the stupidest, a whale, you know, or a fish eating a man, total made up story. Jesus says it's real. So it's probably real. I'm super uh, an apologist right up here, super wise. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for they repented in the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, they said, we want to see a sign. Prove it that you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except the resurrection of Christ. So we as a church, what do we preach? We preach that we believe in a risen Savior because that is the sign. We don't preach, we don't sing to, an, to a, a filled grave. We sing and rejoice over an empty tomb because our God is alive. That is the sign. That is what we preach. That is the power. That's where it's at because no one else has ever done that ever, ever. No one has ever come back from the dead, ever. In the history of, of mankind, except one. So this is the sign that Jesus says it will be to the church. It will be to all men. In verses four through six, it says, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When a preaching strategy is centered on emotional response and entertainment and human personality. The preacher may get a response, but will not get lasting results for the kingdom of God. Like I was saying, it's easy to get a response from a crowd. I could tell you stories of my kids and make jokes and, and you know, we try and keep it light on Thursday nights because you guys most of the time are just falling asleep. It's hot and you were working all day. So we try and keep it light, normal. Not weird, despite what you're seeing tonight. It's easy to get a response from a crowd, but it does not mean we get lasting results. There are many like, ways in which the church uses to attract and use tactics to advertise or free, free this or that or principle stands true. Man, what we draw them with is what you draw them to. We want to draw people to Jesus. I want to draw people to Jesus. This is why we need to allow our faith to stand in the power of God as we believe the words of Jesus and I, when I am lifted up, the earth will draw all men to myself. Do you believe that? That Jesus is power enough, powerful enough to draw all men to himself, even through you? Do you believe that God is powerful enough? A lot of times we're like, yeah, God, you're powerful enough to work through them. But I have some serious doubts about me. Remember, I'll read the list again if you want. But if you remember that list... And all those jacked up people that God used, every single one of those person, people that we listed is an example of the power of God. It's not an example of someone pulling themselves up with their bootstraps and being like, I'm going to be a great person. Watch this. Watch me kill a thousand people with a donkey's jawbone. That's not what Samson's goal was or what his capability was. It's because God's spirit fell upon him. Faith in the power of God. In verse 5, he says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why is it important that our faith is in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men? Because if our faith is in the wisdom of men, if we can be persuaded into the kingdom by the wisdom of men, then we can be persuaded out of the kingdom by, the human, by human wisdom. If we can be persuaded in, then odds are we can be persuaded out. And so our faith must stand in the power of God. There's a bunch more stuff, but we're just going to stop right there. We want to leave you with that principle. 
It's so important in the days in which we're living. It's interesting to see the way that the church is being backed into the corner, not by society, but by God himself. That the gimmicks and the little weird things that we've been trying to do for, for the last hundred years just aren't working anymore. In a time of turmoil and chaos and all the junk that's going on in our world, people are looking for something genuine and real. They just want to feel good. They want truth. And so the church is being backed into a corner. And here's where we need to step up to the plate and say, okay, God, I'm going to stand in faith in the power of God. That the message of the gospel is powerful enough to change any heart, any soul. I believe it. Let's go. No gimmick. You're not a salesman. The Bible doesn't say you are a salesman of Jesus Christ. Now get out there and sell some Bibles. The Bible tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ, meaning we are a representative of Jesus. The interesting thing about an ambassador, and this is, we'll close here, an ambassador speaks two languages, the language of the king, his home country, and the, and the language of the country that he lives in. He represents that spot and the, the embassy in which that, that person resides and works is a territory of the kingdom that he comes from. And so he represents that country. He represents that king. But he speaks the language of the people in order to correctly represent his country in that place. The Bible says that we are ambassadors, meaning that we are from a different country. Aren't we? Heaven is our home. Heaven is our kingdom. Jesus is our king. And we are placed on this earth as a representative of the king speaking his message to a lost and dying world. You don't have to sell it. You just simply be what God has called you to be. And you preach the message that God has called you to preach, that Christ lived and he died and he died for sinners like you and like me. And he calls us all to become his children and accept him as Lord and Savior. That's the message. You don't have to sell it and you certainly don't have to apologize for it. It is the greatest news and message that anyone can know. And so may we, this next generation, if you're like, well, I'm young, you're not too young to start being an ambassador for Christ. You're like, well, I got saved last week. It has, that, you know, we'll bring you along. But hey, don't, <laughs> it's not too early for you to start sharing what God has done in your life. What did Paul say? I came as a, to give testimony of what God had done. He didn't say, I didn't come to, to bring this case before you of all throughout history of what God has, has provided. He says, I simply came to give testimony of what God did. And he gave testimony of what God did in his own life. The greatest testimony that you can share is your own. Because you are a walking miracle. I don't know if you know that. You know Jesus tonight, you're going to heaven. That's a miraculous thing that has taken place. It's a miraculous thing that any of us would be called and invited by God and we responded and we're going to heaven. Our destiny has changed. That is a miracle. And so you share that with people. Tell people what God has done in your life. It's not for us to hide and to apologize for. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we are so thankful. As your word says, that you have called the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Lord, that you use us in spite of us, Lord, that you empower your church by your Holy Spirit. We want to be those that are used by you, empowered by your Spirit. We're thankful, God, that your Spirit is accessible simply by asking for it. 
And Lord, you don't call us to do these things or to be a representative or, or to go out and to, to preach the gospel or to preach the message alone. But you said that my spirit will go with you and go before you. That you want to come and not only live in us and, and bring about life with, within our soul, but God, you want to come upon us and allow your spirit to, to use us and empower us for what you have in store for us. Lord, we're thankful for a God who loves us, who died for us. And if there's anyone here tonight that does not know you, that has yet to give their life to you, I pray tonight that the gospel message would begin to take root within their heart. That you would speak to them, call to them, Lord. To forsake their sin, to repent of their sin, to ask for forgiveness, to ask you as Lord and Savior to believe on Christ and have their eternal destiny changed. Lord, we're thankful that the, the work of salvation has been done and completed in Christ, that you offer it to us as a gift by your grace. And it's for anyone who would ask. So Lord, we're so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the gift of salvation. And we pray, Lord, as we sing to you, as we worship you, Lord, that we would be reminded of the great gift of salvation that we've been given. God, you begin to fill us with your spirit. That we want to believe what you said, that you draw all men to yourself. You are the draw, Lord. You are the source. And so, Lord, we want to point people to Jesus. And so, Lord, tonight, during our worship time, as we sing to you, God, we just want to pray. We want to pray, Lord, that you would be at the center of it. You would be what we see, what we sing to, what we worship, what we praise. Not us, not our own feeling, not our emotion. Lord, we want to praise you. We want a vision of Jesus tonight. So God, we ask that you would come, dwell among us, move among us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Heart in your soul.